following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Good morning again. Great to see you all. I'm Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you're kind of joining us uh, at a bit of an odd, exciting time for our church, but a unique time for our church. We're at the end of a generosity initiative that we have been in for the last six weeks, where we have been asking the Lord to do two things. One, to increase in our hearts capacity for generosity and to draw our hearts close to Him. And two, to help us purchase a permanent place for worship. So, that's where we are right now. We're very close to the end of that. You heard Kathy say next week we're going to have a nice celebration to kind of close things out. But we're also in the midst of uh, a, a time in our sermon series in Nehemiah where we're kind of matching up actually with what's happening here this morning and what's happening actually for God's people in Nehemiah. It's commitment day for us today. It's also commitment day for these folks in Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it up to Nehemiah 10, uh, or it's on the screen above me if you'd like to follow along. I'm going to read most of this chapter, and I'm going to spare you this big chunk with all of these hard-to-pronounce names, so you're welcome for that. But we're going to read most of, of chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. So listen now to God's Word, starting actually at Nehemiah 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then skipping to verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of, the, of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and their nobles, and they enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and of His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods of any grain or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we won't buy them on the Sabbath day or on any holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of any debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of the Lord to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, 
and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, your word does stand, and it stands, Lord, uh, as something that we are come to bow before. Lord, your word is the authority in our lives and our hearts. And so we ask as we open your word today that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears and soften our hearts, that we might know you more deeply and fully, and that we might love you in return. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are a child of the 90s or if you are my age, you know, or somewhere close to that, you probably know the Shania Twain song, You're Still the One. And I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm kind of, Joy likes to make fun of me. She says, I only cry at fake things. And this is one of the fake things I cry at are sappy songs. And this is a pretty good sappy song. Let me read you some of the words here. They said, I bet they'll never make it. You can sing it kind of in your heads if you want, but I'm not going to do it for you. They said, I bet they'll never make it, but just look at us holding on. We're still together, still going strong. You're still the one I run to, the one that I belong to. You're still the one I want for life. You're still the one that I love, the only one I dream of. You're still the one I kiss. Good night. It's a beautiful song. Written by Shania Twain and her husband, Mutt Lang, who is a famous producer and the producer of this record, and he was older than she was. He was famous. She was young. They had just met. They got married, and after a little while, everybody was saying, you know, it's not going to work out. He's older. He's this famous kind of wealthy producer. She's young and pretty. That's why they got married, but it's really not going to work. And in response to that, they wrote this song together. It's kind of fun, isn't it? It's a nice story. It's a nice story for a while at least, until you continue to follow along with their lives and realize that not too many years later, Mutt Lang had yet another affair, this time actually with Shania Twain's best friend. And in fact, he left Shania, got together with her best friend, and get this, Shania Twain is now married to her best friend's ex-husband. You can't make this stuff up. So you're not still the one I kiss goodnight. That's actually my best friend's ex-husband now because, you know, you're hooked up with his ex-wife. It's crazy, right? Commitment's hard. And here's the thing. It's not just hard if you're a famous record producer. Maybe we can kind of give them that, oh, they're in rock and roll. That's just kind of what they do. But commitment's hard for everybody. Now, I'm very thankful that my wife of 25 years is still the one that I kiss goodnight. But Commitment in other ways is not easy for me. I remember <laughs> it was quite a few years ago, 
um, you know, when one of, there was some, I think it was the Atkins diet, some diet that had come out that said, you know, you're not supposed to eat any carbs or any sugar, right? It's one of the long lineage of those diets. And I thought, you know what, I should do that, right? That, that'll be good for me. So I got up one morning and I ate a great breakfast with no carbs, some bacon and eggs, it was really good. And then I had a nice lunch with a salad and was feeling really good until about two o'clock when my body went into revolt and I literally got the shakes and I drove to the store and I bought a Snickers. So I was fully committed to that diet for about six hours. It's hard. Commitment's not something that most of us do really well. So what is gospel-centered commitment? Because that's really what we're going to look at here. Not only what commitment looks like as it's on display in Nehemiah 10, but really we get to see the heart of the gospel, the heart of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he does for his people. So we're going to talk about that. Gospel-centered commitment. What is it? Here's the first thing that we see, is that gospel-centered commitment rejects legalism. Now, that may sound strange, right? We're in the Old Testament. I thought in the Old Testament, legalism was legal. That was the thing you're supposed to do. Not true. Actually, God's grace runs through the Old Testament and the New, and we're seeing right here the beauty of God's grace in Nehemiah 10. You may have even heard as I was reading that word obligation. They kind of kept coming up every now and then, right? And you may have thought, wow, obligation, that sounds pretty legalistic. What's going on there? Well, here's the thing is that we've got to zoom out a little bit and see the big picture. Because Nehemiah 10 comes after, you guessed it, Nehemiah 9. And before you say, okay, great, thanks, Captain Obvious, what does that matter? Let me just remind you of what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 9. Mike did such a good job of explaining this to us last week, so I'm not going to explain it all again, but just listen to some of these verses from Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's verse 16 and 17, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their neck, and they did not obey your commandments, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Verses 18 and 19, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and they'd committed great blasphemies in your great... But you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verses 26 and 27, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Yet when they turned back and they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Or verse 30 and 31, it keeps going. Many, year, or many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then finally, in verse 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Chapter 9 is full of those repeated statements that God's people broke faith and God remained faithful. In fact, at the very end of chapter 9, the first verse that I read for us this morning, there's an interesting indication of that. It's kind of hiding under the surface. Verse 38 says this, 
uh, is that uh, because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. A firm covenant. Now, that word covenant is all over the Old Testament. You're probably familiar with it. But what's interesting is that in Hebrew, there's two words that almost always show up in this phrase. They are karat and berit. Karat is to cut. Berit is covenant. And so, literally, they cut a covenant together. That's kind of where we get this phrase, we cut a deal, right? But what we see here in verse 38 of chapter 9 is the word karat, they cut, but we see a different Hebrew word. It's the word amana. And it doesn't mean covenant in the same way that covenant, that, that berit often means covenant. It has this feeling, this sense of faithfulness, of steadfastness, of firmness. And so what the people are actually doing, you could say literally, is they are cutting a faithfulness with God. They are faithfully committing to God who has been faithful to them over and over and over. Friends, the the definition of legalism is obeying in order that you might be accepted. I act, you have to do for me. It's the Santa Claus version. If I'm good, you will give me good things, right? But that is not what Nehemiah 9 and 10 proclaim. Nehemiah 9 and 10 proclaim the story of a God who has been good to His people, though they have been unfaithful. And in light of that, in response to that, as a faithful commitment to this faithful God, the people respond. So that's the first piece. Any commitment that Christians make is actually in and of itself a rejection of legalism and an embrace of the gospel. But there's a flip side to that coin as well. The second piece is that gospel-centered commitment also rejects antinomianism. Now, that is a big, hard word to say. It simply means the rejection of the law, anti, against, namas, law. So, it is that Christian heresy that says, listen, because God has been gracious to us, we don't have to do anything in response. God has been gracious. He's loved us. He's been faithful. Now, we can just do whatever we want. It is a rejection of the way that God has called His people to live. But that's actually being rejected here in chapter 10 as well. Look again at verse 29. They promised to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. They are actually embracing God's desire for how they should live. To walk in God's law is to live according to His commandments, to live according to His desires. And actually what's laid out here are three specific things that they not only broadly say, we're going to walk in God's law, but here's kind of even how we're going to do it. The first is that they commit that they are going to keep the Sabbath. The the pagan nations around them had been uh, infiltrating and just kind of, um, you know, together morphing along with their culture so that the Christian or the Jewish culture at the time uh, had forgotten, really, to set aside this one day for worship and rest. And so the, the pagan neighbors were coming in, and they were setting up shop to sell things, and God's people had, uh, had let go of God's proclamation that they should actually rest on the Sabbath. So, what they're saying here is that part of walking in God's ways is an embracing of keeping those Sabbath laws. Second piece, 
they also commit, we're not going to intermarry with the pagan culture around us. Now, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I'll say it again. Those prohibitions against intermarriage are not prohibitions against racial intermarriage. God is not against racial intermarriage. They are prohibitions against giving your heart to another God. And God knew, and it was displayed in Israel's history, that what would happen is that when people started intermarrying with pagan cultures, that it's actually the pagan worship that would start to seep into their culture and into their hearts, and that they would begin to give their hearts away. God has told, had told His people, I have married you. I have taken you for myself, and you belong to me exclusively, and so you should dedicate yourself to me exclusively. This was not happening in God's people, and now, as part of walking in God's ways, they are committing not to intermarry with the pagan cultures. But there's a third thing, and it's the one that I want to just kind of settle in here for a second on, is that they actually promised to keep up the temple, to keep the temple going, to keep the worship of God's people going the right way. Maybe you heard me say these words, is that, you know, they were going to provide a third of a shekel for the showbread and for the sacrifices that needed to be made, and each one of them were going to take turns bringing the wood for the sacrifice. Well, the temple was the place that God had ordered and uh, gathered His people to worship and worship Him through sacrifice, and if you're going to sacrifice, you need animals to sacrifice. If you're going to have burnt offerings, you need wood to burn those burnt offerings. And so the people were saying, we are going to take it upon ourselves now to see that the temple functions the way that it's supposed to function so that God's people might worship the way that they're called to worship. One really wonderful little piece under the surface here is that if you remember, the reason that they're back in Jerusalem is that the Persian king had allowed them to go back, and when he allowed them to go back, he actually gave them some money. He said, here, go back, rebuild your temple, and I'm even going to supply you with some of those temple needs. We're going to give you a little stipend so that you can go and worship your God together. And what's beautiful here is this little kind of ragtag group of exiled Jews are saying, you know what, we're actually going to cut off the stream coming from the central government, and we're going to take upon ourselves the responsibility to worship. We're going to take upon ourselves the responsibility to care for God's house. Let me do just a little bit of application here again. We're in the midst of and at the end of this Grow Deep initiative where we want God to work in our hearts, and we're hoping He will also provide for us a permanent place for our, for our church. And we've talked about a lot of wonderful benefits of a physical place for hope, right? One of those great benefits is that we have a place where we can do some great programming with uh, each other, where we can grow in discipleship. Another great benefit is that we could actually grow as a church and reach people with the good news of Jesus in a, in a different way than we're able to in a rented building. Another great benefit is that we're able to serve our neighbors, root ourselves in a place, and dig in and serve those people, and have actually a permanent home by which we can love and serve our city. But one of the things that we haven't talked about enough is that we would love a place to worship. Friends, we want to be a fellowshipping community, but if we were only a fellowshipping community, though that is desired, then we have missed something. 
If we are only a serving community, though we want to be, then we also have missed something. Because God calls us to be primarily a worshiping community, to come and lay our lives before Him, and to give Him worth and honor and glory, to sing His praises, to learn from His Word, to eat from His table, to be transformed together in worship. And we, in the midst of this process, are committing to the same things that that young, small group of folks living in Jerusalem were committing to. We are taking it upon ourselves to have a place. All right, let's continue to move on here. So not only does gospel-centered commitment reject legalism and antinomianism, but it does this in such a beautiful way. Let me just explain this for a second, um, just so that we're clear about what I mean by this. Uh, This is, if you hear nothing else, honestly, today, hear this, right? Is that to actually embrace the gospel, you have to reject these other two things. In fact, we'll show a little diagram up here. So here's how it goes. There is a connection between who I am my identity, and what I do, my activity. But it really matters how those things are connected, doesn't it? Because if I draw the line from my identity to my, acti- from my activity to my identity, like it's drawn here, if what I do actually feeds who I am, my identity is based on my activity, that's actually the definition of legalism. I do in order for you to love me right? There's, there's Santa Claus theology right there. That's legalism. But we also cannot erase that line, because if you disconnect who you are and what you do, you, you fall into the other trap, and that's antinomianism. This idea that, yes, God has made me who I am, but now it doesn't really matter what I do. I'm not called, actually, to live a life that He calls me to live. That's to fall into the other side, the other cliff, So what really needs to happen is that we draw that line from who we are to what we do. Our identity informs and shapes and creates our activity. That is gospel-centered, faithful commitment. That's what it looks like to commit to walking with the Lord in response to what the Lord has done for you. And the reason that we can't fall into either of those errors is something that's… that's, I think, probably a surprise to most of us when we hear this. And it's this, is that both of these errors actually stem from the same root. You ever thought about that? Both legalism and antinomianism, which seem like they are opposites, are opposite errors stemming from the same sinful root. I'm going to read you this long quote. This comes from uh, the introduction to a a good book called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. The introduction is written by Tim Keller, and this is what Keller says about that connection between legalism and antinomianism. It is a fatal pastoral mistake to think of legalism and antinomianism as complete opposites. They are, rather, non-identical twins from the same womb. Both stem from the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden. Namely, that you can't trust the goodness of God or His commitment to our happiness and well-being, and that therefore, if we obey God fully, we'll miss out and we'll be miserable. Because both mindsets refuse to believe in the love and graciousness of God. They assume that any commands given to us are evidence that He's unwilling to bless us. 
Both legalism and antinomianism fail to see obedience as the way we give this gracious God delight as well as the way to become our true selves, the people we were created to be. They participate in the same incomprehension of the joy of obedience. They see obedience as something imposed on us by God whose love is conditional and who is unwilling to give us blessing unless we do quite a lot of work. The only difference is that the legalist wearily assumes the burden, while the antinomian, antinomian, antinomian <laughs> refuses it and casts it off by insisting that if God is really loving, he wouldn't ask for it. And when we, when we fail to see that they are from the same root, we actually fall into an even bigger problem, and maybe you've seen this before and seen it in your own lives, is that we think that one is just the antidote to the other. Right? Find somebody that just feels like they're a little too legalistic. Hey, man, loosen up, right? Let go of all those laws and stuff. We'll just throw a little antinomianism in there to kind of loosen this person up, hoping that might kind of balance the scales some way. Or somebody just seems to be a little too antinomian or licentious. They're just a little too off the rails. We'll throw a little bit of legalism their way, and maybe that'll kind of get them back on track. But the truth is, when we try to do that, we are actually combating error with error, and we end up in the same spot. So what's the answer? What is the answer for Christians when we're called to commit to the Lord? What does gospel-centered commitment look like? Well, here's the answer for us is that it is an embrace of God's commitment to us. The answer for us is that we embrace God's commitment to us, which allows us then to embrace commitment in response. Let me just go over really quickly again in this long passage. You heard much of uh, the talk of Nehemiah of this idea of first fruits, that the people would promise to give of what came from their place. And there's really three basic categories here. They would give the first fruits of the land, their crops, what they would grow. They would give the first fruits of the womb, whether that was in their own family or with their flocks and herds. And they would give first fruits of their home, things like bread and oil and wine, cultivated things. Now, why was God asking them to do this? Why were they actually responding this way? Some of it is practical. In many ways, this was the way that the Levites, the church workers, got paid, was that people would actually bring to them of their own land because the Levites didn't own any land themselves. So part of it's practical. But if you dig a little deeper, I think you see something much, much more impactful. What are the things that they rely on for life? It's an agrarian society, so it's the stuff that I grow, or it's, it's the flocks and the herds that I manage. Or it's the things that I put on the table for my family to provide for them. And here's God's people saying, we are going to dive down into the very heart of actually what we need, the very heart of our provision, the very center of what it means for us to flourish, and we are going to give that away. The land that I worked so hard on, the, the sheep and the herds that I spent all day trying to manage children from my very own house. Friends, how, how on earth can you actually dive down and give away the things that strike right at the heart of exactly what you need? It can only happen if you know that you are giving to a God who is totally committed to providing for you. 
It can only happen if you are fully confident that God is actually going to give you what you need. It can only happen if you're fully confident that God has completely committed Himself to you. And what we are seeing on beautiful display here in Nehemiah 10 is a people who are so firm in their conviction that God loves and cares for them that they are willing to give away the very things that they need to live. It's the same for us. That is the heart of commitment for us as well, is that we trust that God actually has given us all that we need, so we begin to let go of those things that we think we need. Now, there's a word, I'll close with this, that, that, may, that came up kind of early in this passage. Maybe it kind of made you bristle a little bit when you heard it, that word curse. Let me read to you again uh, from verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers and singers and the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They enter into a curse and an oath. What on earth does that mean? Well, as with any agreement covenant structure like this would have had blessings and curses. And so the people are actually saying, listen, we are walking willingly into this agreement, this arrangement where we know there are curses upon us for breaking it. We know that if we break this agreement, which by the way, we just recounted that we've been doing for the last 800 years, we know, we know, and we enter willingly into this agreement in which we know there are curses. There are responsibilities and there are consequences. Now, we don't use that word very often, do we? When we have members join the church, we actually ask them to answer some really big questions and we, we call them vows. We ask them to take vows of membership. That's a big deal. We don't often take vows in our society, do we? Pretty much when you get married and when you join a church. But even in those big vows and those really important questions, you never hear the word curse. We never say to our new members, do you now enter into a curse with the Lord your God? Why is it that we don't say that? Is it because it's not needed anymore? No. It's actually because it's already been taken. And this is the beauty of the gospel, right? Is that we as God's people get to come and we say, we can make a faithful commitment to the Lord knowing that there actually is curse for breaking this commitment knowing that there actually is uh, something that will happen if we break this commitment, knowing that there actually are consequences to breaking covenant with the Lord, and knowing that those consequences have already been taken by Jesus. We said this already in our call to worship that Mike led us in, but let me read to you again from Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, meaning that if you don't obey all of those letters of the law, that there uh, is a curse for those who break them. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So what are we to do? 
Here's the great answer. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Friends, has there ever been, has there ever been anyone more committed to someone than our God has been committed to his people? Has there ever been a God more committed to his people than our God who has said, I know that you're going to leave. I know that you're going to break my rules. I know that you're going to break this covenant. I'm willingly entering entering into an agreement that I know you're going to break. And when you break it, I will put that punishment on myself. That I will put that punishment, that curse, those consequences on me rather than you. That is deep, deep faithful commitment. And we can only respond in loving gratitude and in faithful commitment ourselves. So let's pray for just a minute, and then I'm going to ask you actually to respond uh, in a very particular way in just a minute. Before we do, let's pray that the Lord enable our hearts to cling to Him this morning. Father in heaven, our our committed, faithful God, who has gone to the greatest lengths to fulfill that commitment to us, who you have taken upon yourself, Lord, the curse meant for us. Lord, we cannot help but respond in faithful obedience, in love, in rejoicing, in wanting to walk and follow you all the days of our lives. So, Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would work in us faithful commitment in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our relationships, in our vocations, in our communities, and with our wealth. Lord, show us what it means to be faithful people, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.